you shouldn't shave but cultivate your down and let it grow so when you do return twill be soft and white as snow your lovely jane will be surprised to all begin to cook the greenhorn to his mother will say how savage i must look Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will begin looking at book two of The Conspiracy of Pontiac by Francis Parkman Jr. He published it in, in two volumes. It's quite long work. It's, it's more than 500 pages in the Library of America edition. Audiobook was something like 16 or 17 hours. <clears throat> so it's not a short one. A lot of narrative detail about different battles, different sieges, different uh, efforts to, to take different forts, of which the Indians were very successful. I was just looking at a, a map, um, you know, like a modern history textbook, of course, would have a map of Pontiac's Rebellion, which, which would have little dots at all the forts and little color coding telling you which ones were successful. But I, I found one of those. I, I put it up on my, my Twitter with the last... Uh, announcement of, of uploading one of these episodes and yeah like except for fort detroit most of the western forts were, were taken by by the indians in the course of the conspiracy um so you know pretty close they he, they he almost pulled it off in a way and i i appreciate that about park he doesn't see pontiac's war as an inevitable failure he sees it as as a potentially uh you know a, a moment where everything could have changed right and I, and I think when i'm now i'm kind of getting into france and england in north america the the seven volume uh three thousand page history of the french empire in america in its fall i get the same feeling there that there were there were alternatives there and i think that's one of the powers of, of history and writing history and reading history is it allows us to imagine and articulate and uh ponder about alternatives in different ways history could have could have gone that it's not it's not a teleology it's not written in stone uh it's not or it's not written in the heavens i should say and and we're just kind of fulfilling it like like it's all god's plan or something uh there's different ways things could have gone and and you know it, it kind of almost breaks the heart how close pontiac got to to you know changing the nature of american empire in the frontier um Anyways, um, what is book, book two? Uh, I'll do it this and then the final episode. Um, it really covers much more, especially the early part of book two, covers much more just like the brutal nature of the warfare during this conflict in the frontier region. So the focus is, is much more on the away from the forts that's covered in book one. Book two is more just the general generalized violence in the frontier. Um, you got, for instance, uh, the Battle of Bushy Run, which was a frontier battle in which the British uh, basically won or at least prevented uh, Indian advances in the frontier. It's kind of a victory. And then you have a, like a, just a massacre at Devil's Hole, as some I call it, or the Battle of Devil's Hole, in which uh, one Iroquois lost his life in the slaughter of some couple hundred British soldiers in a, in a caravan. I mean, such a one-sided battle there. Um then you got the the failure of Detroit. The chapter is called "The Indians Raise the Seas of Detroit." Basically, they just give up. 
Um, and then, then the Paxton men, the vigilante violence that broke out in the frontier is discussed in this part as well. Now, the rest uh, of the book deals with the resolution to the war, how generals like um, Bradsfield, Bouquet, uh, I haven't mentioned these names, although they show up in this text throughout, but these were the uh, Bouquet. Who's the other guy? Um, Krogan. He's working, getting peace treaties with the various tribes of, in the Illinois area. But these three generals in various campaigns, well, I guess uh, that last name, uh, Croquet, Cro, uh, Krogan, sorry, Krogan, he's not really a general, he's just more of a frontiersman, but Bouquet and Bradstreet were, and they work out treaties with various Indians. And basically one after another, the tribes pledged, repledged their allegiance to the, to the English and, and, and come to some kind of peace with them. And that's how the, the rebellion sort of ends, just kind of whimpers, whimpers out. But first we get this really shocking and brilliant and powerful description of just the violence, the, the brutality of, of life during, in 1763, 1764 in the frontier tier, tier regions. And I think it's some of his best, the, the best stuff that I've read of Parkman that's not included in, in France and England and North America, you know. The Oregon Trail I found a bit of a slog, although it had a lot of interesting personalities. Even this book, it's just because of, I think it's of its heavy narrative. I feel you don't get Parkman stepping out and, and giving his opinion about things as much as he does in, in his later works. In France and England and North America, he's, he's quite chatty, actually. And, and you, you, you see the, the hand of the historian a lot more than, than in this book, which uh, maybe it's because it's an earlier piece by him. But this stuff on the violence of the frontier and the vigilantism, I think is really standout stuff. It's, it's um, really, really powerful. So as I was saying, uh, this is, the book two starts with chapter 18. So book two is chapter 18 through 31. So that's the second half, a little bit less than half. Of the full bulk of the text and chapter 18 is called frontier forts and settlements and it basically deals with the the violence of the frontier uh, not the forts so much although some forts are mentioned here like fort pit just the you know all the little battles all the little conflicts all the little massacres and murders and and vengeances that took place across uh, the frontier region, um, you know, and and kind of the story shifts from the threat that Pontiac poses to the settlements in the east, in the coast, in Virginia, Massachusetts, whatever, um, New York, if these forts like Detroit fall. Um, and in the book two, we start to get more feeling of just the people who have already started to move into these, the, the settlements that are just edging into into Indian territory, you know, kind of explaining why the British felt the need to issue the proclamation line of 1763 to stop this migration to the West, because uh, people were already kind of migrating there, these frontiersmen type, and that they're at the forefront of this battle, um, you know, just like the troops are, more so than the people in the, in the, in the communities in the, in the West, or in the East, the settlements in the East. Like, listen to this, uh, 
Quote, the intelligence concerning the fate of the traitors in the Indian villages proved to be true. They were slaughtered everywhere without mercy and often under circumstances of the followers' um, barbarity. A boy named McCullough, captured during the French War and at this time a prisoner among the Indians, relates in his published narrative that he, with a party of Indian children, went out one evening to gaze with awe and wonder at the body of a traitor which lay by the side of the path, mangled with tomahawks and struck full of arrows. Now this uh, journal I need to get a hold of. So... Um, let's see the footnote. All right, I found it. I, Parkman's footnotes aren't that good. They're not modern footnotes. Um, but I found it here. The captivity narrative of John McCullough. It's, it's in Google Books, I think. Um, anyways, check it out. It should be wild. Um, actually, we're going to talk about the captives later on, too. I think maybe in the next episode it comes up. Uh, just the during the French and Indian War, during Pontiac's war, you had a lot of people who were just captured and brought into Indian communities. And, and they lived there for a number of years. And then for some of them, going back to to the settlements, to the white settlements, was not what something they wanted or wasn't that um, good for them. Anyways, yeah, I found this. It's handwritten. I don't know if it's been made, it hasn't been published. I think it hasn't been published. So, so if you go read this, go to the, you go to, the university in Ohio where this is, and read it. It's the State Library of Ohio Rare Books. If you read this thing, you're probably reading, maybe you're reading the same one that Parkman read. Cool. All right. Um, so maybe not so easy to check out when I'm here in Taiwan. But anyways, uh, you know, other examples of violence as well here really struck me uh, quote a, tra a trader named Chapman was made prisoner by the Indians near Detroit for some time he was protected by the human interference of the Frenchmen but at length his captors resolved to burn him alive he was tied to the stake and a fire was kindled as the heat grew intolerable one of the Indians handed him a bowl filled with broth the wretched man scorched with fierce fiery thirst eagerly snatched the vessel and applied it to his lips but the liquid was purposely made scalding hot with a sudden burst of rage he flung back the bowl and its contents in the face of the Indian. He's mad, he's mad, shouted the crowd. As though the moment, and though the moment before they had been keenly anticipating the delight of seeing him burn, they hastily put out the fire, released him from the stake, and set him at liberty. Such is the superstitious respect which the Indians entertain for every form of insanity. Uh, a wonderful little piece of Americana there. Uh, the, a man survives being burned alive because he, he the, the Indians who were murdering him thought he was insane. Right. Um, yeah, uh, we got some stuff here on the Fort Pitt, the, the attack on Fort Pitt, because Pennsylvania becomes really important in this part of the story because that's the that's the centerpiece. You know, the forts that get attacked are like around Detroit, present day Indiana, a little bit of Illinois, Michelin-Mackinac, Michigan, that area. Right. And. You know, so a lot of the frontier fighting that breaks out takes place in western Pennsylvania. That's, of course, where the Paxton boys come from. And Fort Pitt, later on Pittsburgh, uh, was the center of, of some of the fighting. Um, 
But these these societies on the frontier were just already so intertwined that this this becomes a such such a brutal war between people who were familiar with one another, right? These traders being massacred. You got these mixed communities in some of these villages, and and these were you know people who some of these settlers were already making this their home um, to a certain degree. So these are really intertwined societies. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so one guy, when talking to the to talk to the Indians, a lot a lot of this book are these uh, conferences, right? Um, you know, Captain Euclid, you know, he says this, he says, you know, we built this fort for the purpose of supplying the Indians with cloth and ammunition, right? And he refuses to leave the place. He's saying, this is our home. You have attacked us without reservation or provocation. You have murdered and plundered our warriors and traders. You have taken our horses and cattle. At the same time, you tell us in your heart you're good towards your brother in the English. How can I have faith in you? Therefore, now, brothers, I go advise you to go home to your towns and take care of your wives and children. Right, but these are societies that are already really, you know, tied together intimately through commerce, through through cultural interactions. In some cases, through marriage. So, um, you know, I, I think this is uh, really this this chapter and these chapters here really pop out just in in describing the tragedy of of this Pontiac's War in the frontier regions. Uh, next, we have chapter nineteen called "The War on the Borders." And this is more violence, the generalized violence in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and, and the frontier areas of those, those colonies. And we get our first real introduction here to Colonel Henry Bouquet uh, in this chapter, who's going to be very important in putting down the rebellion in the area of, of this frontier regions, right? So there's going to be like three main areas where the rebellion has to be put down. One near Detroit, all right, and, and through the the Iroquois regions, one is kind of in that more center frontier area, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Virginia. And then you're going to have the, the Illinois really back, you know, back there uh, for the time. Um, but here we, we meet Henry uh, Bouquet, who has a, a commission with the English army, the British army at the time. He's Swiss. He's a Swiss background. Uh, quote, he had first served the king of Sardinia and afterwards the Republic of Holland, and when the French War began in 1755, he accepted the commission of lieutenant colonel in a regiment newly organized under the direction of the Duke of Cumberland, expressly for American service. The commissions were to be given to foreigners as well as to Englishmen and provincials, and the ranks were to be chiefly filled from the German emigrants in Pennsylvania and other provinces. You know, obviously you learn that when you study American history, that the British Army did rely on mercenaries and free agents the, the Hessians, right, that, that you, you studied in, in first grade. If you're an American, anyways, you did. They, they, they were mercenaries for the British Army during the Revolution. Um, and anyways, Henry Bouquet becomes the one who has to manage this war on the frontier. Um, now, this is something that I know from Parkman's introduction. He adds in the second edition of this book. Because uh, he, he mentions it here in the preface to the sixth edition. Sorry, the sixth edition. Um, so, and he says, I found some new documents. And so I include them in the book. And he says, among them, among the facts which they bring to light, some are suffi sufficiently startling. As, for example, the proposal of the commander in chief to infect the hostile tribes with the smallpox. So this is the smallpox blanket stuff. If You probably heard that story. Uh, I know it's mentioned in... Um, uh, 
Howard Zinn's The People's History. A lot of people have heard about the smallpox blanket. There's even an episode of South Park where this was smallpox blanket joke in, in at some point. I forget when. Um, but, you know, we don't have the evidence here, and, or at least Parkman doesn't. Maybe it's since come up to light. I'm not sure. Just that it was being discussed. That's what we have here. Not that it was actually done. He says, there's no direct evidence that Bouquet carried into effect the shameful plan of infecting the Indians. Though a few months after the smallpox was known to have made havoc among the tribes of Ohio. So think what you want. I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Um, but here's, uh, so we got um, a couple a couple letters here. Um, so, so the first is, could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of the Indians. We must on this occasion use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. And Bouquet replies in a postscript, I will try to inoculate with some blankets that may fall into our hands and take care not to get the disease myself. As it is a pity to expose good men against them, I wish we could make use of the Spanish method to hunt them with English dogs, supported by rangers and some light of horse, who would, I think, effectively extirpate and remove that vermin. So uh, then we got uh, the original guy who wrote the letter. His name is Amherst. He replies again, you will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to expurgate the execrable race. I should also be very glad of your scheme for hunting them down with dogs. So, uh, you know, yeah, I'm acknowledging that this seems like it happened. Uh, at least Parkman doesn't want to say I know for sure he did this, but... Uh, it, it seems it happened, right? At least there was a smallpox outbreak in the Ohio. Now, I don't know how long smallpox can live on blankets. I know we were talking with this with the coronavirus now, you know, how long it can live on surfaces and things. So, what's important for me is just how brutal this war was, you know. Using dogs, using bioweapons, you, you know, slaughtering whole villages. Uh, mass mobilization of frontiersmen in vigilante groups, on and on. I mean, this is a really, really brutal war. Um, so I got the smallpox blanket. And just the growing hatred for the Indians along the frontier regions is something that Parkman identifies here in this chapter. Just how increasingly hateful towards the Indians the people of the frontier become. Um with not a few, the craven passion of fear drowned all of their emotion, and day and night they were haunted by visions of the bloody knife and the reeking, reeking scalp, while in others every faculty was absorbed in the burning thirst for revenge and mortal hatred against the whole Indian race. Okay, so chapter 20 is called the Battle of Bushy Run. This is one of a handful of major battles in the, in the war, in Pontiac's war. And essentially... Uh, it was fought on August 5th and 6th in western Pennsylvania. Uh, Bouquet was the commander of the troops. And basically, it was the first major defeat of the Indians in the frontier. Um, Casualty-wise, uh, it was, you know, about 20 maybe Indians were killed and maybe 50 or 40 or 50 British. But it did stop uh, them, and it was a victory. And, and it was treated that way by both sides. So... Um, and the Indians begin to despair at, the, at their success, right? Because from the from day one, Pontiac knew that this war would be achieved, would have to be won quickly, and the terror inflicted on the communities 
very, very quickly within you know days, right? That's why they use subterfuge and cunning to get into the forts. The failure at Detroit maybe been that thing that 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 prevented a, a broader success here. I don't know. But uh, the Battle of Bushy Run did kind of put a stop to a lot of Indian campaigning in this frontier region and shifted the initiative over to the to the British. Um, so that's that. Um, chapter 21, though, is a very different picture. Uh, we shift for a very, very short chapter, um, a chapter called The Iroquois, the Ambuscade of the Devil's Hole. This is another battle, the Devil's Hole. Um, and now what we're told here by Parkman is that Sir William Johnson, another, he was kind of a command, he's, he was for a long time talked about in this book. He fought in the French and Indian War. And he believed in basically making peace deals. He, he believed some kind of negotiation was possible with the Indians. And he had the soft hand with the Indians. And this battle sort of shifts official opinion away from taking the softer hand. So um, this is, becomes like a major defeat for the British. Um, essentially, you have like a caravan going through this area called the Devil's Hole, and the Iroquois ambush it. I guess they're mostly Seneca, yeah. They must, they must be, because uh, they were involved in the, the, the rebellion. And something like one Indian dies, and maybe like 200 British soldiers were killed in an ambush. So despite the, the other victory in Pennsylvania, there's a major defeat in 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 uh, New York, but there's no other major battles mentioned in this narrative. And if you search Wikipedia for Pontiac's War and get the list of the battles, uh, this is the made last major engagement in the war. Much of the rest was just uh, exhaustion and then small, like still brutality, still fighting, but no major pitch battles. It's just uh, the Indians begin to fall. Uh, you know, begin to negotiate peace with the British one after another. Um, chapter 22, The Desolation of the Frontiers, 1763. So this chapter, you know, you, you think, well, haven't we been talking about the frontier all along? Yes, but Parkman sort of shifts his focus here to the people of the frontier a lot more. And he starts out talking about the frontier as the zone of the expansion of American civilization and the people who live there. Quote, the advancing frontiers of American civilization have always nurtured a class of men of striking and peculiar character. The best example of this character have perhaps been found among the settlers of Western Virginia and the hardy progeny who have sprung from the generous stock. The Virginia frontiersman was on occasion called a farmer, a hunter, and a warrior by turns. The well-beloved rifle was seldom under his hand, and he never deigned to lay aside the fringe frock, moccasins, and Indian leggings, which formed the appropriate costume of the forest ranger. Concerning the business, pleasures, refinements of civilized life, he knew little and cared nothing, and his manners were usually rough and obtrusive to the last degree. Aloof from mankind, he lived in a world of his own, which in his view contained all that was deserving of admiration and praise. He looked upon himself and his compeers as models of prowess, of manhood, nay, of all that is elegant and polite. And the forest gallant regarded with peculiar complacency his own half-savage dress, his swaggering gait, and his backwoods jargon. He was willful, hell-strung, quarrelsome, frank, straightforward, and generous, brave as the bravest, and utterly intolerant of arbitrary control. His self-confidence mounted to audacity. Eminently capable of heroism, both in action and endurance, he viewed every species of effeminacy 
with supreme content and accustomed as he was to entire self-reliance, the mutual dependence of conventional life excited his especial scorn. Beautiful description of the frontiersman. Of course, heroic. What would we expect? Um, but anyways, I like reading about the people of the frontier, especially when someone like Parkman talks about them or someone like James Fenton or Cooper. Um, Anyways, over the course of this chapter, we get a lot of descriptions of, of the war in the frontier, a lot of the day-to-day -day violence, a lot of the success of the Indians in terrorizing these frontiersmen and their settlements and their, their farms. Um, and all this is setting up the Paxton boys, the, the, the Paxton um, vigilantism. Um, because, you know, that's... That's kind of the a side story in Pontiac's Rebellion, which actually I was originally kind of surprised to see it here, because I, I, I mean, I read this years ago, so but I didn't remember the Paxton boys being a major part of the story. But of course, you know, in your history textbooks, you read about them, you know, because what what did the Paxton boys? What's the lesson of the Paxton boys? Well, these were vigilantes, you know, who committed acts of genocide against the Indians in the frontier in the context of a war. Um, we've seen so many examples in the 19th and 20th, especially the 20th century, of genocide inflicted under the cover of war. Um, war being used as an excuse for these brutal acts of violence. Um, but we also see them as, a, as an example of people, the people's growing disgust and, and lack of patience with the British government. Because why did they act? Why did they become vigilantes? Um, yes, racism. Yes, desire for land. Yes, all sorts of other um, brutal motives. But this feeling that the British can't protect them, right? And after a year of violence in the frontier, or months and months of violence in the frontier, and the British doing little to stop that, to stop uh, Pontiac's war, these people take matters into their own hands. And yeah, they don't raise an army to fight Pontiac and raise the siege of Detroit themselves. No, they slaughter a village. Right, the, a cowardly act certainly, and then you get a conflict between the vigilantes and the government as they go on trial, which leads ultimately to the Paxton boys marching not on the Indians anymore, but marching on Philadelphia, and Ben Franklin has to get involved in all that. So it's a it's a it's a story that that how you interpret it, whether it's about decaying, rotting trust between the British and the colonists, and how that leads to the American Revolution which of course is just 10 years down the road, or as really just how genocidal the colonists could be and how, how from the grassroots up, violence and empire are, are the heart of the American experience. Uh, the Paxton boys are part of that story. Um, anyways, I skipped, I forgot a chapter here. Uh, so I'll get to the Paxton boys in a bit, a little bit more. Uh, chapter 23 is called The Indians Raise the Siege of Detroit. Um, Normally, when some, we talk about someone raising a siege, it's it's they come down the hill and save the day, right? They they defeat the sieging army and lift it. Uh, why would the Indians raise their own siege? Well, it's because they gave up. That's that's the point. They just uh, eventually know they're not going to take Detroit, and and as the months go on, it gets it becomes winter. Or winter's coming. You know, the Indians start to just abandon the the siege and and, and give it up. 
Um, and it, it means the failure of Pontiac's rebellion, essentially. Uh, the failure of the siege of Detroit means the whole thing doesn't work, despite all their other successes. Um, you know, they, they win virtually almost every battle that they fight here. Uh, that bushy run, they lose. They lose Bushy Run, but they pretty much, and, and they lose Detroit, but they win pretty much every other battle they fight over the course of the rebellion until this point. Um, but it's so central to the plan, its failure is a death blow to the Indian cause. Quote, Detroit had been the central point of the Indian operations. Its capture had been their favorite project. Around it, they have concentrated their greater force, and the failure of the attempt proved disastrous to their cause. Upon the Six Nations, more especially, it produced a marked effect. The friendly nations in this confederacy were confirmed in their friendship while the hostile Senecas began to lose heart. Availing themselves of the, himself of the state of things, Sir William Johnson, on the middle of the winter, persuaded a number of six-nation warriors by dint of gifts and promises to go out against the enemy. He simulated their zeal by offering rewards of $50 for the heads of two principal Delaware chiefs. 200 of them, accompanied by a few provincials, left the United Community and directed their course southward. And they actually make war on the Delaware. So you start to see solidarity among the Indians break down. And that was one strategy used by the, by the British. You know, Make peace treaties with this, bring them on your side, use them against the still belligerent Indians. Um, all right. Uh, so the Paxton Men. Chapter 24 and 25 are about the Paxton Men. Chapter 24 is just called the Paxton Men. Chapter 25 is called the Rioters March on Philadelphia. And... Um, the context of this is just the desperate state of the frontier men by 1760, late 1763, 1764. This feeling that they were helpless, right? Um, quote, the frontier people of Pennsylvania, goaded to desperation by long-continued suffering, were divided between rage against the Indians and resentment against the Quakers. And, and that's referring to the government in Philadelphia. Um, now, the people who made the core of the Paxton's boys were Presbyterians. So they're, they're Scots, right? They're Scottish frontiersmen. And, and anyways, they disgusted with Philadelphia not doing anything, disgusted with the British not doing anything, living more on the frontier regions, feeling the threat of this rebellion. They organize this vigilante group. And what do they do with this? Well, they slaughter the Indians at... Constoga, right? Uh, not far from Paxton, from, from this, this settlement, the settlement by which the Paxton boys get their get their name. Um, and you know, eventually they get tried, they get arrested for slaughtering the Indians, right? Now, yes, there's a war going on, but there's still some basic human decency, I guess. Uh, although it's 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 hard to, to believe seeing how brutal this war was, you know, some distinction being made between slaughtering a village of helpless people and 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 fighting Indian belligerents. Um, but, you know, the, I think there's some story here about kind of an ambivalence about the government and how to deal with them. And I think there's changes over time because, um, you know, later on, we'll see with Bradstreet. He, he kind of works in the Iroquois lands around the Great Lakes and subduing the Indians there. He has a, he does more like individual peace treaties than using force and violence. And he's kind of criticized for that. So, you know, I, I think there's a, a lack of a coherent early policy. But anyways, Pennsylvania is against killing all the Indians. So they put the Paxton boys 
on, on trial. The Quaker government in, in Philadelphia is. And so we get the trial um, of, the, of the Paxton boys. But it's just a general trial against the Paxton boys. They're not able to capture, they're not captured, they're not identified who actually did the murder, right? It's just whoever did this is, is guilty of this crime. So anyways, Penn, the, the government in Philadelphia, tries to move some of the survivors of this village into protective custody, right? And the Paxton boys actually break in and, and to attack them. That I grabbed from Wikipedia. I think it's mentioned here on page 712 in the Library of America edition of this book. About three months after the massacre at Con Cons Constoga, a party of drunken rangers fired by the general resentment against the more varying Indians murdered several of them, both men and women, whom they found sleeping in a barn not long after. The same party of rangers were, in their turn, surprised and killed. Oh, this is a different event. Um, anyways, I think it's here somewhere. But, yeah, some... Some nasty affairs going on with the Paxton boys, but it, you know, there's it's an important movement in in American revolutionary history, both in setting down the reality that America is a brutal genocidal empire, you know, from the bottom up, from the beginning, and then in this key event in in just breaking down trust between these colonial governments and the and the local people. So chapter 25, the rioters march on Philadelphia. This is, uh, they, they literally just march on Philadelphia with grievances um, demanding some redress um, by the government, uh, protesting the failure of the government to protect them. Now, it's, it's kind of much ado about nothing because they, they bring the petition, they're, they're listened to, Franklin comes out and chats with them a little bit or something, and then they agree to read the petition before the, the legislature. And they go away. But the, the Paxton boys are going to have a, a long, I mean, the memory of this and the importance of this in the colonial crisis is, is key here. Although Parkman doesn't say too much about that. He just sees them more as part of the overall Pontiac's war. But here's what he does have some kind of inclusion here, which I kind of liked. Uh, Yet to the student of human nature, these events supply abundant food for reflection. In the frontiersman, goaded by the madness of his misery to deeds akin to those by which he suffered, and half believing that in the perp, uh, perp, perpetration of these atrocities, he was the minister of divine vengeance. In the Quaker, absorbed by one narrow philanthropy, the closing his ears to the outcries of his wretched countrymen, in the Presbyterian, urged by party spirit and sectarian zeal to countenance the crimes of rioters and murderers, in each and all of these lies an embodied satire which may find its application in every age of the world and every condition of society. End, end quote. Um, there's just the, the conflict, the, the fundamental division between the Quakers in government and the frontiers men and their, the different lives they lived and the different attitudes. Because one thing I forgot to mention is that the Indians that were victims of the Paxton boys were pretty much all Christian. And that's one reason the government sort of backed them up, backed the Indians up, in, at least officially, it's because they were seen as, you know, kind of on the right side of things, um, you know. But for the frontiersmen, for the Presbyterians in the frontier, uh, only genocide would do. So, all right, um, that's going to be it for now. We're, we're coming to the end of the conspiracy of Pontiac. One, mo one more short section, which really talk just about the 
the peace treaty, how peace was, was brought to, at least temporarily, um, for a generation or so to this part of the world. It all flare up again in 18, 1812 under, under Tecumseh. Um, but, but that's another story, which we may or may not get to in this podcast. Actually, did, I think the Library of America did publish a book about the War of 1812. Um, they, they have a series of, of books about wars. They got like the four-volume Civil War book. They got one on the American Revolution. Just collected documents of the wars. And I think they did one. And then, of course, they got journalism from the Second World War. I think they got a great war book out now. So they, I think they did one about War of 1812, or maybe I heard a rumor that it's coming. That might have to come to stuff. Anyways, for now, uh, that's going to be it. So what do you think about the Paxton boys, the role of vigilantism in American history? Uh, the frontier, how Parkman describes the frontier. Um, whatever, leave me your comments or send me an email. 100pagescast at gmail.com. And in the next episode, I'll be finishing up uh, the Conspiracy of Pontiac and finishing up this volume of Parkman's writings. And this is all in way of prelude to France and England and North America. Uh, the big, uh, the feast we've been waiting for. So, um, yeah, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. Uh, and meat for, for coffee and for brains. Your 60 days are a hundred or more in your grub. You've got to divide your steers and Some heads will ache.